0: Hello colleagues, welcome back to Evidence and Argument, a podcast for speech-language pathologists, audiologists, and the scientists who support them a podcast where you'll come with questions and leave with more of them. A podcast by two people who love thinking and lively debate, but hate beating around the bush and baseless claims. Hey, Meredith. Hey, how's it going? It's been a long time. (laughs) It
1: has been a long time and a lot of things have happened since our last three episodes that have been really useful in us explaining what we think the world is doing and the world coming back and saying no this is what we're doing and this is what you need to talk about and as you know december and january came and went and during that time we you and i saw this mounting er, discussion I'll say about asha and who asha is and there were in december is when speech pathologists pay their dues to continue practicing. And that's why December matters. It's the time of year where there is a lot of discussion about what am I paying for? Do I have to do this? Is ASHA doing anything for me as a practitioner? And then on top of that, and, you know, we had no interest in necessarily talking just about our field and its history, et cetera, but really what pushed us to take our originally planned topics and push them to the back burner for now is this uh, Instagram account that you and I were tagged in Called Miss Whistleblown, and it directly targets our field in Asha. And so far, it seems like there have been a couple of installments or whatever you want to call them where there's a series of points talking about who Asha is, what Asha does and doesn't do well. And the interesting thing about it is that it is anonymous, like, nobody knows. Who is writing this, or who the people are? Is it a woman? Is it not a woman? Like what what is this account? what we all know what inspired it? Probably all the December conversation, especially in this crazy year with Covid and Black Lives Matter and just all the things that were happening, maybe, you know, it just came to a head and people someone was like, "Fuck it. know <laughs> I'm gonna write about this." And the interesting thing was that we decided, you know what? Let's make this next series about this topic. Let's really. Let's really talk to some people who know. And so what you and I have decided to do is to make episodes six, seven, and eight about three general areas, the history of where we came from, how our field came to be, what the current complaints are, and what solutions are. So those will be the topics of the next three episodes. And obviously, you and I are not naive enough to think that we could cover this Ground without any help from others. So I employed the knowledge and wealth of experience from Dr. Travis Threats. Dr. Travis Threats has been in our field for several decades, but importantly, he's been a department chair at St. Louis University for 15 years. He has been the representative for the World Health Organization and ASHA and represents audiology and speech pathology. He's a National Association of Practice um, member, and he has lobbied on our behalf to senators. He's had those kinds of conversations. He's also run a clinic and had to go and lobby about reimbursement to insurance providers, etc. It certainly helps that he's a black male and has a perspective outside of the typical lens of Um, a white female. So I spent some time talking to Travis, and we are going to incorporate some snippets from what he said, or I'm going to try to paraphrase him throughout these next
0: episodes. Who did you talk to? Several people. I decided to contact as many people as I possibly could. But a really important one was um, Marie Ireland. I spent almost two hours talking with her. She has a history of being highly involved with school-based SLPs, um, has been in state-level leadership positions and has, has also been in ASHA leadership positions, which is why I chose her, because I know that she knows what it's like from being a school-based SLP to serving in ASHA and would be able to give me a nice picture there. I also talked to um, Lindsay Sorowski, who's done a lot of leadership stuff within you know, both state association and ASHA, Brooke Richardson, Karen dudek brannon Matt Hot, and several other SLPs. And once we're done recording these podcast episodes, I'll go ahead and um, I think we should just have a section where we link to all their names and their, you know, bios and stuff so that if people want to follow up with them, we can. Because we're basically going to be pulling little Mm -hmm. snippets of things that they explain to us. And it'll include, you know, audio snippets as well as us just discussing it. Because if we put everything on here, it would be about... 12 hours of content. (laughs) So we're going to try to break it down into little chunks. I also think another important thing to say is each year around Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving, SLPs start getting really hot and bothered. They start getting really pissed off. Social media gets way worse than it normally is. And so, and I think an interesting thing for me is knowing that, you know, this December there was a ton of dumpster fires on social media with SLPs complaining about the status of things both within our field in general, and they always seem to point fingers at ASHA. That's really common to happen. And, you know, that Mrs. Whistleblown account also happened right after December, so maybe early January or so, but it's not the first time it's happened. Like, before Miss Whistleblown, there was SLP, Oh uh, God, what was it called? The Unpopular SLP. There was the unpopular SLP 2.0. There's Speech Uncensored on Facebook. And so, you know, this recurring thing (laughs) happens every single year, basically, where in December – just shit hits the fan, you know, Mm -hmm. and then people calm down throughout January, act like everything's fine and well, and then shit hits the fan come Thanksgiving the next year. And so I also would like, as we, you know, go through this for everybody to recognize that this is a repeating pattern that happens over and over again. And what's going to be different this time? You know, what are we going to do in our understanding of the landscape in order to get out of this pattern? You know?
1: Absolutely. The question is, Can we bring people into a world where they understand how we got here? Because I think that's the big missing part, which is we know what we're dealing with, but we don't know why we're dealing with it. We don't know what decisions were made to get us here. Therefore, it's hard for us to think that we can ever play a role in changing it. But I'm hoping that when you and I are done, we will be able to show how decisions that were made knowingly or unknowingly before we got here ended up being something big that we deal with now and decisions that each and every one of us make now can determine where our field is in 20 years or something like that.
0: Yes, absolutely. All right. Are you ready to look backwards and see where we came from? Where did we came from? Who come from? Who are our roots? Who are our ancestors? All right. So first of all, you can trace speech-language pathology roots all the way back to the 1800s with elocutionists. And a lot of times these people who were helping people with communication disorders, whether it was a fluency disorder or aphasia, were actually physicians. So they were called speech doctors, and they basically were physicians with expertise in speech. However, to trace our roots to the medical field is actually not very accurate at all because that didn't last very long. By the early 1900s, the people doing this type of work in the United States were teachers. So from about the early 1900s to the 1930s, it was specialist teachers who had no extra training but just kind of decided to start working on speech stuff, usually in the summer months, were treating things like speech, stuttering, mutism, Nasality, so they often had kids with like cleft and lip, um, lip and palate on their caseload. Um, and these speech correctionists were actually a subgroup of the NEA, the National Education Association. So, first of all, considering that, you know, just a hundred years ago, we basically were teachers, we were like a special version of teachers, kind of helps, you know, understand why we often get looped in with teachers today. ASHA then was founded in about the 20s. Something that I think is relevant is in the founding group, about half of the people were affiliated with universities. And when I was doing research for this episode and trying to read as much as I possibly can to bring things to people, that really struck me because my perception is that our leadership is still heavily dominated by university folks, both at the national and the state level. So that's, you know, an example of something where when you start a certain way, sometimes you continue a certain way for many decades to come. Then around the 60s is when speech services started to be present in all public schools, where it wasn't just some schools had a speech speech pathologist, but all of them did. Also in the 60s, we started to see a lot more presence of people like us in movies and things. So like in my fair lady and then the miracle worker which is a movie about helen keller we could find from that era quite a few examples of basically like what what they present as is essentially like speech fixers like the person who comes in and you look at this um individual who's either has a communication disorder or no disorder at all and you know the speech pathologist comes in and fixes them I spent a little bit of time watching old videos um, uh, from some of these movies. And the things that struck me most were some of the ableism and classism within these, which we can, you know, talk more deeply about later. But I think it's pertinent to note that, you know, this was the 60s. This also wasn't that long ago, that our field is basically being presented as those folks who fix the talking, essentially. We didn't start treating language disorders as separate from speech until the 70s. And pragmatics wasn't even added in until the 80s. And you know more than me about when dysphagia was added in. When was dysphagia?
1: Yeah, so I think what ended up happening with, and uh, Travis told me a while back, that uh, when aphasia came in, you know, with the 70s and the war and uh, uh, the VA being a place where you had a lot of speech pathologists who are dealing with men who had aphasia or other language issues, that was fought against by the mainstay that you've already described, the people who were into speech correction and kids and saying, should we be doing this? At the same time, people are having swallowing problems. And in the 70s, Speech pathologists were practicing in these areas like swallowing because people were saying look there are problems like stroke, parkinsons, etc where they have not just speech issues but the same tongue that doesn't allow them to pronounce the sound also will not move the food the way it should and the only people who were around who were rehab centric in terms of the way they approach these patients were speech pathologists and they happened to be the people who were dealing with the same structures that impacted oropharyngeal swallowing. So they started practicing before it was in our scope of practice. It wasn't until the nineties that they started to say, no, you guys need to actually need to put this in our scope of practice uh, Jerry Logaman was uh, president twice and played a role in it getting in our scope of practice. And that it wasn't until the early 2000s when Asha said, hmm, maybe this should be part of our education since people have been doing it anyway, and it's in our scope of practice. So it wasn't until the early 2000s that Asha said, university should have swallowing somewhere in their curriculum.
0: Which I think is probably going to be pretty surprising for newbies to our field, you know, to like look at where we are today with things and recognize how recently, you know, swallowing was added, recognize how recently language and cogcom and pragmatic stuff, all that was added. Yeah. But
1: when can I just say one thing about this? What we've heard so far is at some point we're going to get to a big concern. I just want to put a foreshadowing plug into. Please pay attention to how things came into our to our domain it wasn't a decision among the people who are the decision makers sitting in a room at ASHA or at a university, it is the practitioners on the ground saying, these people need help, I'm here. And then it works backwards, right? Or forward, I don't know, you know, who should be driving what. But the point is, by the time the decision were, decisions were made, universities were often saying, no, we're not going to add reading, we're not going to add AAC, we're not going to add swell, we're not going to add language, who's going to teach that? And so I, you know, while universities may have, been the ones that made the decisions to found the field, the expansion, the breadth that we now talk about may have had more to do with clinicians who started practicing and then wanted to bill for it.
0: So, so that kind of gives you a, you know, an overview of like a timeline of our field, which I think is important too, for, you know, not just scope of practice related things, but everything like our fields research as well, like our fields research mm-hmm. isn't nearly as deep as a lot of other fields, in part, because it's new, also in part, because we don't have as much money, which is also related to the fact that we're, you know, it least somewhat related to the fact that we're new. So let's kind of start to touch on some of the um, problems that regularly come up in these, you know, social media dumpster fires among SLPs and, you know, anonymous accounts that get brought up. And you know, when you get a bunch of SLPs in a room, and you know, I've spent some time interviewing SLPs for these episodes, you know, they, they always seem to circle around some of the same core issues that just come up over and over and over again. So when you talk about problems
1: in our field, I assume that we're gonna jump at some point into, and you can let me know what some of the SLPs you talked to said, but to me, one of the big issues is we already talked about the breadth of what we do, but also the perceived value of the profession and respect. Things like, why do I have to be an ASHA member? So if we start with perceived value of the profession and respect, I'm wondering if the perception that our field is not respected or that people don't know what we do, is because of the way we came about, which is we started with speech in universities, then we went into school systems, then we went into hospitals. And everything from speech to language to swallowing means it's hard to know who we are, where we work and what we do. And the practitioners are deciding I'm going to work on this, even though it's not what I do. The researchers are like, I'm going to go study hair cells, even though the practitioners maybe don't (laughs) know what that is. So it's like, Uh, we we don't know who we are, where we work and what we work on. And then Asha is perhaps not doing the best job of helping to make this cohesive, even though at the end of the day, they are the ones who decide ultimately who we are, where we work and what we do. What do you think?
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. It's difficult for us, I think, to present ourselves in a coherent manner to the rest of the community when we're still spinning around issues of what's our job, what does our training look like, you know, how are we going to tackle this? In a lot of ways, it just, I feel like I've said the word new 20 different times already, but we, we've got to figure out how to deal with that going forward. But yeah, I definitely think it's the fact that we just started scooping things up without a clear picture of what the consequences might be, you know, and you can always look in hindsight and say, oh, we did this and should have done this, but it's not always possible to predict how things are going to play out. But um, the choices that we have made as a field for damn sure have landed us exactly where we are.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So you
1: said something that helps me to transition. So this is, let's always remind ourselves, it's so easy for us to jump into the problems and we have to do that because that's where we live. We live in the today and we see the problems. But in talking to uh, Dr. Threats, there are a few things that he mentioned that really, in my opinion, impact the perceived value of our profession slash respect and what some of the complaints are. So I want to talk first about uh, this idea about it being required to be an ASHA member. And it's gonna be a bit of a tangent, but I'm gonna bring it back around. So the first thing is that, I remember when I graduated almost 21 years ago, not every state had state licensure. So that meant it was possible to practice in certain areas without a state license. And ASHA didn't like that because a lot of SLPs were beginning to be in a medical setting. And certainly while in the educational setting, The requirement to be an ASHA member is not the same, but unfortunately, you know, beauticians and other disciplines require licensure. You can't just go get your hair cut and somebody doesn't have something on their wall saying, I'm certified with the state or the city or whatever, but SLPs could. So for 20 years, and again, when you talk about the youngsters not knowing how recent this was, for 20 years, the last 20 years, ASHA lobbied hard to get uh, states to make sure that they at least require the state licensure level and that they at least ensure that they were at the ASHA requirement to make it easy. Like, you can just copy-paste our requirements and upload them to us. Um, And so, okay, fine, that is supposed to get us together as a field. That's supposed to get us more cohesive, that no matter where you go, there's some basic requirements. But there were also interesting things that happened with policy for reimbursement that then didn't exactly help us in terms of respect on the other end. So the first thing I talked about is about cohesion and the idea that there are standards and you can't just walk up into this hospital like OTs and PTs were having to be beholden to their state, but we didn't. So I get that. Let's make sure we're on the same page. So that's the respect. Who who are we? What do we do? But the other thing is, how do we bill? How do we make money? This is the, one of the most interesting things that Dr. Threats mentioned was two topics. One is private practice, and the other is lobbying. So I'll start with private practice.
2: Uh, historically, back in the 50s, uh, they actually came out a document that said that uh, uh, private practice should be discouraged, that the, uh, that the influence of being paid to do something was inherently uh, only 20 or so years ago were audiologists allowed to sell hearing aids they were actually forbidden to sell hearing aids because it was thought that if they could sell hearing aids it would it would uh, it would influence their evaluation of the patient the only reason we have hearing aid dealers and dispensers is they came about because the actual person doing the testing it would be as if an opto- optometrist could not sell you glasses was forbidden from t- selling you glasses Wow. So uh, that's it's kind of the extent of uh, the history. It was thought of as a humanitarian field and, and uh, there was a, a suspicion of any uh, money changing hands would influence uh, the behavior. Now this is obviously despite the fact that uh, PT is a long private practice history. Um, and uh, the other reason in terms of private practice that it was difficult to um, for people to do it is because we were not included in the original Medicare language uh, like uh, PT was, which is why there's so many more PTs in private practice historically. But PT, dentistry, uh, physicians have obviously had a long history of private practice. Uh, we have not had a long history of private practice, uh, despite the fact that we do, uh, we do generate profit. I work for a company. I won't mention the company's name because they've threatened to sue me so many times, uh, <laughs> and I'm, I, I, I don't lose, but I'm just tired of hiring somebody, uh, who, uh, who told me I was in management, it was a national company, that a speech pathologist only had to be 20% productive to make their salary and benefit. So at, at the time, this is years ago, a $50,000 therapist was generating around $200,000 a year. Uh, so with that money, has always gone to employers or you could be part of a rehab, and you could be a uh, and uh, access Medicare, but you couldn't do it uh, individually. So there's a uh, now some of that might have been uh, due to anti-prior practice, or it could have just been when Medicare and all that was uh, coming along, Asha wasn't just vigilant enough. Uh, they said something about a wording of how something is worded that somehow we got excluded, but. Uh, Without a third, uh, modern medicine as we know it, doctors didn't always used to be well off. Yeah. Doctors were well off because people made them suits for free and they built their houses for them and they cooked for them, but they did not have a lot of money.
1: Yeah. It was a trade. It was almost like they traded services. I'll take care of your wound. If you'll help me build my barn.
2: (laughs) That's right. That's right. So they lived well, but they were not well off until Medicare and Medicaid, uh, because especially the early days where whatever they charged, you, you got, <laughs> uh, they actually became quite wealthy because they've never had people able to afford all these medical care and, and tests and such. So even though the uh, AMA uh, voted against Medicare, lobbied against Medicare, said it was, see if this reminds you of anything, socialized medicine the huh. end of medicine and the end of the doctor physician relationship as we know it if it would pass hmm sounds familiar hmm, yes uh they were very much against it but in very much as a profession have been enriched by it so we missed that train <laughs> we missed yeah. that initial uh jumping on
1: and just to be uh, clear it, we it, missed that train because
2: uh well I, I would have to talk to the people who were ahead of ash at the time. How uh, long ago was this
1: again? Just remind me.
2: This is the 60s, 60s. The 60s, Medicare right. and Medicaid That's, didn't come across.
1: You know what mm-hmm. I think, Travis? I think the tragedy of our field is that every time major decisions are made, it's left up to a small number of people who have power at that time. Mm-hmm. And it seems like these decisions are made in short scale without really bring, educating the overall me, body to say what is it that you guys listen, want for yourself? And you let,
2: want. let me give you the a, a more modern day example.
1: So there was always this sort of overprotection from the, from the higher-ups in the field, and often there are university individuals who are concerned about our appearance and this, this idea, this veil of integrity that they hold in their academic settings, that if I say this, I'm doing this research and I'm separate from the results, I am distinct, personal and politics do not match, and they're pushing it on practicing clinicians, while other fields are actively doing things like a PT. PTs, for instance, they have so far ahead of us in terms of what their private practice, because they were at the table when this was all happening. They were building private practices. Do you think they're not selling any merchandise? I mean, obviously, if they're selling things that don't help a patient, it's gonna catch up with them. But the integrity of being a clinician should be assumed, just like the integrity of being a university employee or administrator.
2: Let me give you the, a, a more modern day example. Clinton and the Balanced Budget Act, which we can go on to that. It was actually just a mirage, as all federal government things are. In the federal budget cap, that's where the cap came, the $1,500 shared cap. Again, something decided in the wee hours of the morning to balance the budget on paper. In other words, there was, there was, they couldn't get to the balance. And they said, oh, here's some therapy here. If we uh, if we cap this, then on paper, we can balance the budget. Completely blindsided, uh, ASHA, and I would say the other things, because I think it was us and uh, PT had to share it. So here's a, here's a major piece of legislation. I don't even know if ASHA thought they were even part of the Balanced Budget Act. In other words, it wasn't the re... Uh, every time the... Uh, uh, Individual Disabilities Education Act comes up to be done or American Disabilities Act, every organization is there at the table because it directly affects um, you know it, it, it directly affects the field right but the uh, uh, balanced budget reconciliation, uh, why yeah. would we ever get, get in that, uh, why, why would we ever be there yeah. and yet we were there and why were we there because if everybody else If everybody else has a lobbyist at the table, if everybody else is uh, there shouting, don't cut this, don't cut this, and you're trying to get down to something, and everybody else is telling you, if you cut us, this bad thing will happen, if you cut us, this bad thing will happen, and that just mentioned political contributions, right? If everybody is out there and they're trying to balance the budget, now remember Clinton, Democrat, considered friend of causes. I just like to say that that's a kind of a myth here. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, who, who, who isn't represented? Who's not here?
1: Speech pathology. You cut, out,
2: you, you cut out the person who's not there.
1: Yeah. So are you saying we weren't there because we chose not to be there? We didn't think we needed to be there, but other people were there lobbying.
2: Yes. Uh. I don't think it, I don't think it was a, like somebody asked them and asked, said, no, we don't want to come when they said they didn't see it coming. I think they're telling the truth.
1: Okay. Okay. They did
2: not know it, but right. It was, uh, you're looking at, so think about medicine. You've got surgeons, you've got this group, you've got the endocrinologist. Oh, you can't cut diabetes care. You can't cut here. Yeah. You, you know, everybody else is there. Yeah. Uh, so it was it just speech. Remember therapy got screwed over in this process, yeah. but, uh, but, but there was therapy, this, this, uh, and now this, this part is our fault, this open-ended, non-curing entity. Okay? Now, by the way, we'd like to point out, insulin does not cure diabetes. Sure. So,
1: but endocrinologists do understand the situation and keep it under control, if nothing else. That's right.
2: That's right. That's right. So nobody says that. No one says, well, you know, you've had three chemo treatments and you still have cancer. Uh, we're not going to pay for this anymore. Because right. obviously it's not working. Right. Because the people who do that are there at the table. Cancer is about the most profitable thing, about the most profitable thing any hospital does. So here we are. And now remember, but there's, that's not just in every case, that's not blame the bit bad government. Okay? Because here's what happened they did this cap. There, are, I've, I've, I've uh, met with uh, congressmen, I've met with senators and House of Representative members. Everybody's got a family member who's had a stroke or dementia. This is not an unsympathetic group. But here is the problem. They did this, then they realized that, um, you know, limiting the sessions to ten sessions, they, they realized, okay, maybe we went too far. So they said, well, Okay, maybe that was too far. Okay, just show us the proof that 25 sessions makes a better lifelong improvement than 10 sessions. Just, is, just, you know, just show it, we're, we're sympathetic. Just show us that, and uh, you know, we can work on reversing this. And there wasn't an answer.
1: Asha didn't respond to it?
2: No, no. There oh. isn't an answer. Oh, There's oh, not an answer
1: in the field. You're saying the research literature was unable to justify that what we do can requires more time or intensity, et cetera, in certain domains. Is that a fair yes. a summary? The, the
2: key is it's it's not. And again, let's be sympathetic toward the government. Think about the government as your own household. You can't afford everything. So you have to decide what's the most important to you, right? Mm -hmm. So it is not wrong for the government to say we want to see what we're getting, what we're paying for. That's not inherently, you shouldn't think that anybody who questions like just writing us a blank check is evil Mm -hmm. and hates people. It's not people with disabilities that they don't care about, it's whether we are effective is the thing that's the question. mark?
1: Right. They're happy to pay for something that works.
2: (laughs) That's right. I was told by the head of uh, disability for uh, the CDC, Center for Disease Control and Prevention, years ago, uh, 15, 20 years ago, talking about the rehabilitation organizations, not just ASHA, was not singling out us. Zach quote, professional rehab organizations are nothing more than collective guilds, and the only thing they care about people with disabilities is getting paid to treat them. Ooh, you have to say that again
1: slowly. Say, Say that again slowly. What was the quote?
2: Professional organizations, rehab organizations, are nothing more than professional guilds, and the only thing they care about people with disabilities is getting paid to treat them.
1: Now, who would have thumbed Clinton's Balancing Budget Act and the therapy cap would bring us to say researchers aren't doing research
0: about clinical needs? I mean, similar themes came up with Marie Ireland talking about the history of IDEA not being fully funded. And if SLPs are paid through IDEA within the schools, but you don't have enough money in IDEA, we end up with our hands tied where it's like, oh, we've We've packaged ourselves as SPED. We've packaged ourselves as going under this, you know, line of budget or whatever. But, oh, whoops, there's not very much money there. Now where do we make up the money? And, you know, yeah. yeah. And another thing that Marie said that kind of aligns with what you've said is a disconnect among Various perspectives within our field, where she mentioned that one of her biggest concerns is that when people have only been in one setting for their entire career and have had one type of job within our field, it makes it a little bit harder to connect the dots with what we're doing wrong Mm -hmm. and also to know where you can ask for things. Like she talked about how SLPs are, you know, always getting on Ash's case for caseload and being like, You know, (laughs) this is a state thing. Like if you want to change your caseload and you want to see something change within the next year or two, you need to be focusing on the state association, local things, local school district related things, you know, so these decisions continue to be made today. Like you mentioned, you know, not having a seat at the table. We still don't have a seat at the table all over the place. Like I, and, you know, we'll we'll go into maybe some of that stuff deeper in the future upcoming episodes. But another thing that I think that we should maybe talk about just a smidge more is the concept of um, university- folks being heavily present within leadership positions in our field and the money related thing, because I sort of see it like like basically, as you know, as soon as you started talking, I was like, see, that's what happens when you have, you know, committees that are dominated by people in higher ed is they have a very certain perspective. And, you know, being raised in higher ed, I very much was taught that, like, money is dirty, never have a conflict of interest, always push away from the money, never get financially involved, da-da-da-da-da, which has Mm -hmm. its own benefits. But how different would our field have been if ASHA in the 20s was founded by business owners? Oh, man.
1: Like, holy shit, we would be in a totally
0: different position. Now... Note, I am not saying we would be in a better position because if business owners ran our field, we would have our own totally different set of problems.
1: But business owners do run our field. Who is in charge? Let's go back to Ms. Whistleblown and what I learned from her or him or they, which is the person in charge of Asha is Ms. Pytrayton. And it's a small group of tightly knit, apparently. And we can, you know, they can get on our show and say, no, that's not true, if they'd like to, we'd totally welcome the opportunity to talk to ASHA representatives a small group of individuals who've been there for many, many years, who've been ultimately making the decision. So when you talk about them tapping university individuals or high-level clinicians to be on the committees, these people are advising. What ASHA ultimately decides at these higher levels don't have anything to do with us. Same with the lobbying efforts. There aren't a bunch of us university people who are being encouraged to go down and talk to senators that we're being encouraged to publish or perish or to get better student-teacher evals. And so those are really administrative things. So there are business people, but the question is, and you know, oh, actually, wasn't that the first title that Ash is a business? What was the first title? It was Ash is a business without, without competition. And what what business when you have a monopoly? How does that business run itself? It doesn't run itself the way a business with competition would.
0: Uh, if I mean, yeah, it makes a huge difference when you when you have guaranteed revenue and you know that basically laws and regulations and, you know, systems are in place to guarantee that revenue, it, I think that there is the potential to respond differently to the people who you serve. Just like, you know, in my business, if it was guaranteed that, you know, the people who buy from me were to pay year after year after year, it would change the way I respond to their feedback. It would allow me to, it would allow me to not care so much about, their feedback and make decisions that I thought were best.
1: Yeah. Well, here's here's some so it sounds like we're now in a the history section of how money flows. And I love the the natural transition we're making. But this then goes to the December argument, which is why do I have to pay Asha? Asha is one of very few institutions that require that everyone pay them unless, of course, they happen to live in a state or in a position, an institution where that is not required, right? Not a state, but an institution. Like if you work for the school system, that school doesn't require you as an individual can see those kids and ASH is not involved, right? But the other thing that, again, we learned from this is that the AMA, the American Medical Association, only 30% of physicians belong to the American Medical Association. They all have to be certified by the state they work in or the states they work in. You know, there are some physicians who live on the border of some state or like maybe the DC, Maryland, Virginia area, they might be certified in more than one place, right? But they they are required to be licensed by that state. But as you can imagine, I just mentioned that ASHA historically has been, has only lobbied recently that these states have this mandate. So that means they're kind of beholden to ASHA. So the likelihood that the state of, you know, Iowa is going to come over and say, we don't need ASHA anymore. We're lobbying to get rid of ASHA and you can just work in the state without us. That's not going to go over well either because they are responding to ASHA. The other thing that's interesting is the AMA is considered mostly a political in, uh, association. That 30%, they're mostly 60 and older as physicians. So it's kind of a, a dying thing and the reason that the long, the younger people and again this is all coming from Dr. Threats he's educated me very very well being a being affiliated with the World Health Organization and talking to people at the CDC has been so valuable to him and thus us and me is because the younger people felt like the AMA had a conservative slant and they don't want to be a part of it. So it's the AMA's job now to shift to the new breed of people who are coming in, who are saying, um, excuse me, if you want my money, you have to work for me and going for those causes, isn't working for our generation anymore. So isn't it interesting how the money flows when they have to respond to a new generation of practitioners, as opposed to the old people
0: who set it up. Right. Wow. It'll be fascinating to see what happens with the AMA. Yeah. Um, The physical therapists don't have to belong to their national association either, and only a fraction of them do. But a lot more of them um, contribute lobbying dollars. And the other tricky thing is, too, is, you know, SLPs often just don't, unfortunately... There's not very many people explaining to them how this works, so like for example, when I was in the schools, I worked with a lot of people who didn't have their C's you know um, because we happen to be in a state where that's allowed, and in the schools, you know that was allowed but you know people are so confused all the time about what their options are as well. And, you know, so, and if they let their Cs lapse, and then they want them again, and uh, it, they have to go through a million hoops in order to get it
1: back. And-, and let's, let's be clear about what those hoops are. Okay. The hoops are that if you decide to work for a school system for a few years, and you don't, and they you just don't pay Asha, because you don't need to, If you don't pay ASHA when you don't need to and you ever want to leave that job and go do PRN somewhere at a a SNF, now you need ASHA membership. You have to prove that you have the standards of what people are graduating with now not the people next to you who don't have to do that. And what does that mean? If there wasn't dysphagia, if there was an AAC, if there weren't all these courses that they now have, you have to go back to the university setting or someplace and retake those courses
0: to give ASHA more money. That's crazy. It is crazy. It is crazy, which is why anytime a student asks me or, you know, a young clinician asks me, I'm always like, oh, uh, <laughs> you better know what happens if you try to not, you know, have your C's. But It's also unfortunate, too, because, you know, during COVID, I've seen SLPs who are out of work, not by their choice, who've had to stay home to, you know, teach Mm -hmm. their kids because their kids can't go to school, you know, so Mm -hmm. money's already tight anyway. And then they're having to Mm -hmm. work, knowing that they're not going to be able to work as an SLP for a couple years, but they're Mm -hmm. paying their dues because they get in trouble if they don't. Like, that's not good.
1: (laughs) Well, speaking of COVID, the other historical thing that happened that's now biting people in the butt in terms of where the money flows and things, and this is another example of who gets to decide whether it makes sense or not. So, where other, again, Dr. Threats was great, and he said where other fields were getting rid of the hourly requirement to, you know, your 375 hours you need to graduate, nurses, OTs, et cetera. He said that, for instance, OTs do two 12-week stints where competence is the bottom line, not the number of hours, meaning everything they do and soak up and learn in that environment, from documentation to educating parents to actually doing one-on-one with the, with the client or in a group, that time you spend there is what is a, is a competence-level decision. ASHA still requires only one-on-one time with a patient. And as a result, when COVID happens, a lot of these other places were fine in terms of making sure students could graduate and be competent because they didn't have an hourly requirement. But when people were saying, Asha, can you change the rules? The universities, the very universities are saying, can you change the rules and minimize the hours? Asha said, no, because they'd have to figure out how to negotiate all these hours with all the states they went and spent 20 years trying to set up the hours with. But here's the interesting thing. Years ago, ASHA tried to change the rules from hourly to competence-based, but guess who complained about it? The universities were complaining that there are other universities that aren't as good or don't have as many um, sites to practice, and they would fudge the competency levels. So rather than saying, let's bring up everybody and help them to have a competency-based things, some universities were then penalized and said, no, we have to have hours because those places that don't have a lot of placements will fudge, can you talk about integrity? might fudge the competency requirements. How can we help each other? How can we help each other instead of penalizing each other? Because we all know you can do all your 375 hours and still be incompetent. And you can have an amazing experience for 10 hours with some really enriching moments. You can have amazing week as a student. Like this week was amazing in my sight. I learned so much information and it just happened to not be A linear learning experience. So we're screwing ourselves in every fucking orifice we can find all the time.
0: And, you know, that's another example of, you know, somebody made a decision, the university faculty pushed back, said, no, Mm -hmm. we don't want it this way. And lo and behold, oops, (laughs) like, uh, oops, (laughs) maybe we screwed that one up.
1: And the funny thing is the people who are probably dealing with now, those aren't the university people who dealt with it, who said those things then. They're probably long gone. And this is why I hope we, these three, this trilogy ends up going, how are decisions we're each making now and, and realizing we are the history that they're going to talk about 20 years back. And maybe some students are going to be listening to us, our podcast and saying, these were the light of our field. Or maybe they are like, this is the reason our field died, because Meredith and Ian has had the nerve to get on the horn and say all of this shit about us. And then some Senator heard it and shut down the field. You know what I mean? <laughs>
0: Well, I hope at minimum, yeah, we get people thinking about, yeah, how the decisions they're making today and decisions in their recent past are affecting, you know, what's happening with our field. I, I feel like we can't talk about the flow of money within our field and center it around ASHA, because even though a substantial amount of, you know, like SLP's money is going to ASHA each year, there's a hell of a lot of money going from SLPs to our field's businesses as well. And most of our field's businesses have far more money than ASHA does when it comes to the amount of things they're responsible versus the the revenue they're bringing. The amount of things they're responsible for versus the revenue they're bringing in. So I, I think it's important too, because I'm not so sure I'm seeing many of our field's businesses Taking it upon themselves to regularly ask, how is what I'm doing? How is what I'm selling? And how is what I'm charging affecting the future of our field? I'm seeing a lot of money within our field being very, um, like money exchanges being very incestuous almost, where we're like pulling money from within our own field, hoarding it, and then just like pulling and hoarding and pulling and hoarding by our field's businesses when in reality if we want to be seen outside of our field if we want to you know fix this thing of what do SLPs do what the heck is their value our fields businesses need to be looking outside of our field rather than in it rather than the constant focus being how do we fix SLPs how do we help SLPs how do we fix SLPs also being you know with my you know position in our field How can I direct attention and how can I pull revenue from places outside of our field? I don't know. Mm -hmm. There just seems something about it to me, especially because you see SLPs complain about Asha's taking all our money. Asha's taking all our money. It's like, oh, there's a lot of people taking your money. Asha just isn't as good at explaining why they are, you know, like Asha's marketing just isn't as strong, but there is a lot of companies taking a lot of your money.
1: I think taking is different from electing to give, right? There are frugal individuals who say, if I have to pay the 200 or whatever, $200, $300, whatever, I forget the exact, I don't, everyone pays slightly different, 325 or whatever it is for ASHA, you best believe I'm doing all the free CEUs. I'm not going to ASHA. I'm not giving any more of my money. It is possible to only really pay that amount. I'm not signing up for any of the SIGs, right? But most people do understand that there might be something to the idea that, Free CEUs may not be the best quality. And sometimes it is nice to have somebody who's a known entity get in front of a group of people and actually explain something and raise your hand and ask a question, whatever, right? But I think you're one, I had never thought of it the way you said it, which is if it's about money going out, period, whether it's forced or if you foster it yourself. You're right. One CEU course or forget that one certification. You know what? I uh, was talking to somebody and hearing the hundreds of dollars that certain certifications or trainings are hundreds, like six hundred dollars, one thousand dollars. So that you can do your job, not so that you can have a leg up in a very specified area. This is so that you can even figure out how to use this piece of equipment or something like that. And I, or, or just how to understand physiology, just basically how does a swallow work? You know what I mean? Those kinds of things. It's like, wait, $600. That's crazy. And you know what? The funny thing is that they sponsor ASHA and Asha sponsors them. You will see these businesses in the Asha leader and these ash these individuals are on the committees that make decisions about their them as well and that is a as you said incestuous. Nobody's really looking outside and saying rather than trying to shut off OTs from doing feeding, how can we all do a better job at helping these patients? And to the extent that we all make Better revenue because they're act. We can actually go to billing and reimbursement and our research journals and say, look, we actually really helped babies that where we weren't sure whether or not they could feed and not and needed that tongue needed the frenulum cut or not. It was a question in all of our fields with physicians, etc. We brought our heads together and we learned something. But no, everybody's in their silo and selling. And, and a business person could come in and see a problem and say, huh, nobody knows how to do this. I'm going to make a workbook about tongue tie and make a shit ton of money. And nobody's going to fix tongue tiny better because that workbook is out though. Because the problem is much bigger. And the beginning is just getting these people to have a
0: conversation. There's no money in getting people to have a conversation. A little more focus outward. Like I yes. swear there's something to it, especially with the effect like, with marketing in our field too, with helping people to understand our value.
1: So you talk about looking Outside of us, and as somebody who feels like an outsider inside the field for reasons other than my expertise or other than my training, I did all the right things as a speech pathologist. I have three degrees in speech pathology. I've been had a short time, a short stent clinical. I went back to school and did my PhD. I was on faculty. I've recently lessened, become a business person. I have been on administrative committees. Yet, I still feel like an outsider because this field is filled with people. Who make a point of suggesting that. And I'm not the only one. I'm part of the 8% who, is, who do not self-identify as white. Um, most people listening probably know um, anecdotally or by looking at the numbers that ASHA publishes to see that our field is 92% white and about 96% female. And what's really interesting is that the history of that comes from a lot of what you said about the history of ASHA. You have Older white males who are the scientists in universities up through, you know, times where, you know, obviously, if you weren't white or you weren't male, you weren't in any of these settings, university settings in the 20s by the time Ash was founded. These were predominantly white people and predominantly males um, in the Midwest. So by the time Jim Crow is happening where, you know, you and I can actually drink from the same water fountain a lot of these changes with healthcare that we talked about, when people, you know, the Vietnam War, these things are just happening recently too. So, Black people are just getting their rights as human beings in this country. It's no surprise that we also weren't exactly being ushered into a field where our speech differences were literally the things being fixed by the white people, right? So, if you want to know the history uh, where speech elocutionists, et cetera, were correcting speech, One thing that's been talked about a lot is that grammar has always upheld an oppressive system. And in that particular My Fair Lady situation, it's a woman, Audrey Hepburn, who wants to have a flower shop. And she's gone someplace because she needs to improve her speech. She's completely normal in every possible way. She's probably smarter than the guy who's fixing her speech, right? But because she doesn't speak a particular way, she can't get the high society people to respect her, etc. So she has to speak the way they do to get a leg up. How frequently do we see somebody's grammar or spelling, or whatever, and go after them. and Or we see an application from a student, and we're like, oof, subject-verb agreement. If you can't do that, what else can you do? And you somehow believe that because your subject-verb agreement is good, that you actually can outthink somebody like me. Now, granted, I'm not somebody who came from a background where my speech is any different from yours. I'm Canadian. But it's really interesting, then, for me to be a control group serve as a control and experimental person within one circumstance, where I'll be on the phone with somebody as Dr. Humbert and the whole time, if they're out of our field or in our field, they don't know who I am, I'm a white female. And then I show up and suddenly the dramatic change and being your own control helps you to really see how having the right speech, but not looking the right way is such a stark contrast. The grammar um, holding up the oppressive system is actually perpetuated by people in our field.
0: And it's, you know, I I think the grammar thing is a good example, but you could look at other areas too, you know, like the ableism inherent in, you know, being like, you know, fixing fluency related issues. You know what I mean? Basically taking a kid or an adult onto your caseload and being like, well, I'm going to fix this so Mm -hmm. that, you know, you don't have issues in your life as you, you know, carry ahead. You know, something that's kind of, I, I have a question for you. let us I don't know if you, um, you have an answer for this or not. It makes sense to me that our field would be predominantly female because of our roots in teaching, right? Where, you know, teachers historically are more often female. And if we basically are coming from the teacher bucket and we broke off of the teacher bucket, it makes sense that our field would have a history of being more female. But we're way more white female than teachers, so what did we screw up? I mean, honestly, like, what did we screw up? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't. Do you have any sense for. So I can tell you what I think
1: happened, but I'm not white. You are. So you can tell me about you can tell me about your people and what you think they think when black people come around better than I can. I can tell you the covert ways they try to cover up their surprise when they see me. I can tell you what I've heard even among black people who want to protect black students who speak African-American English and even say, look, the world doesn't like the way we talk. If you can code switch when you interview for that placement, you might be more likely to get it. You know what I mean? So I think it comes right down to racism. And if we don't say that, then we are lying to ourselves. If we don't think racism is a reason why our field is white, and the second white people are willing to raise their hand and say, Yep, it's racism. Instead of asking me what I think, why why would any white person admit to me after I mean the last twenty years, people lose their jobs over saying that stuff to me. I have to find it out by accident or when somebody's drunk at a conference. so i turn I turn that question to you.
0: You're right. It is racism, and it is the fact that we're you know in graduate programs, expecting students to code switch, expecting students to eliminate their accent, expecting students to present a certain way. And we look at certain people and think they won't be able to make that jump. And we're like, ah, you might not be able to make that jump. I don't know, you know. Or we see in their written application, I, I think that graduate admissions committees are literally prioritizing white females in their statements because they sound like an SLP. You know, oh, this sounds like an SLP to me because I've created this image in my mind of what an SLP sounds like, and they're matching it. And so it's like, oh, look, that's a fit. That's a fit. Yeah.
1: I would also add that the clickiest people I've worked with from setting to setting, I've worked at medical places like Johns Hopkins University or School of Medicine, where There it was not predominantly white female at all because I was in the school of medicine all the way to Howard University, where it's predominantly black. There were just two students, the whole who were not black the whole time I was there. And only in the last five years, I moved to the University of Florida, University of Iowa, where it's predominantly white female. I've never found a clickier group of humans other than white females. I'm telling you my experience. I'm not telling the way a group is. I'm telling you my experience and if you're clicky you're going to look for people who fit. You're going to look at people who validate you. You're going to look at people who will suggest that what you're doing is not wrong. We do not come to a world where that happens. It's why people sometimes, not always, but sometimes get over excited if a man explains something because it's mansplaining and then I find if I say the same thing it's not mansplaining it's Dr. Humbert said. So if you are if there's a culture associated with We we don't have much respect. We don't make much money. We're the bottom barrel and you're clicky. Boy, are you going to really close in the ranks in terms of who fits? Right. So there is probably also that culturally that hasn't really been investigated. Again, this is anecdotal. I would very much like to hear all the people scream at me and say, how would I know? I'm just telling you as an outsider, the kinds of things that have been said. But in addition to that, let's also then say as clicky as you are and as important it is that you are a fixer and that you got the problem right and that you weren't trained properly to be in certain settings. Is it any surprise that rather than looking at the individual who has a difference or a disorder, be it because a difference would be bilingual, right? Somebody who speaks a different language, we're not looking at that as an asset, We're actually saying you need to be more like an English native speaker, which is stupid because they're coming with skills we need to take advantage of. But a lot of Americans are very sensitive about people not speaking English. Take us in the medical setting. People who are able feeders and swallowers are the worst to people who can't feed or swallow. You know what we do? We take away their experiences because we think we know what we would want if we couldn't eat. That is the most ableist of all the things that we do. We know perhaps what it was like when we probably couldn't speak for a time or we were censored or whatever it was to not say how you feel. Everyone's had that experience maybe as a child where you, the adults didn't want to hear you, or maybe you did have a speech difference. But very few of us in our field have ever not been able to swallow and feed, unless maybe you got your wire shut, your, your jaw shut, and there was a period where you had to suck from a straw. But similar to hearing, which is why audiologists aren't here as much. And why deaf culture hates us is because you have these hearing ableist people telling them how to behave and what we would do for them. I'm hoping feeding is the next hearing culture where they tell us to fuck off. And if they say, no, I'm eating what I want. And if I die in front of you, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I've decided this is what I want to do with my body. Stop taking away my opportunities because it's what you and able body feeder think you would want if you were me.
0: So basically this, you know, biased, myopic field, heavily dominated by not just white women, but, you know, the culture of white women, where even, you know, people who, um y- y- people basically are expected to, like, fit into this box of, like, how we're supposed to behave and interact with each other and, you know, problem solve in our field and everything. That's screwing us up in the same way that, you know, having university professors run everything or having business owners run everything or have people, you know, like it's it's screwing things up because it makes us oblivious to our blind spots, just completely oblivious.
1: Yeah. Well, the next episode is what's going wrong, what the current issues are, and boy, this will be easy to run through. Just, I mean, it, it, we, we don't need to do a whole lot of research to, to figure out what the problems are because not only are we living them, we've heard the same response. So let's talk about that for sure soon.
0: <laughs> Sounds good. See you shortly. <laughs>